0: Ask for the one who is weak in faith. So if you were not here last week, you read that phrase and you may have, okay, weak in the faith. This is like a weak Christian. No, it's not a weak Christian. It's not a weak moral Christian. Watch. Ask for the one who is weak in faith. Welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. Don't welcome them with the attitude, yeah, bring them on in, we'll set them straight. That's not it. So what does he mean, weak? One person believes he may eat anything. Give me some of that. I'll try it. Yeah, it looks great. Hey, if it won't make me sick, I'll try it. Well, that's one guy. While the weak person eats only vegetables. So there's a difference. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So this last phrase goes to both. For God has welcomed him. You don't do that to them. You don't do that to them because God has welcomed them. Who are you? This is a great question. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now he switches gears in verse 5 from food to days. One person esteems one day as better than another. That's the day. While another esteems all days alike. So who's right, Paul? Verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced In his own mind. The one who observes the day. Guess what? The Bible says he observes it in honor of the Lord. Hey, why do you do that? Because I love God. I fear God. I want to please God. Great. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Both of them literally are doing what they do or what they don't do in honor to the Lord. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, now watch, he's going to make two categories of people. Right now you're in the living one. But you could picture yourself later on in a different frame. Verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die... We die to the Lord. So you're going to move from one category to the other. Guess what? You're still living and dying to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Why is he saying that? What does that have to do with this food and days? For to this end Christ died and lived again. That's why he did all of that, that he might be Lord both of the dead, I'm um, their Lord, and of the living. We'll probably hit this next week. What he's saying is, I died and rose again so I can be the Lord of the living. And I can be the Lord of the dead. I can be the Lord of the ones that we would call weak in the faith. And I can be the Lord of those that you would think are called strong in the faith. I can be the Lord of both. That's why I died. Back to today's message, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you do that? Or are you? Why do you despise your brother? There's the two groups. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Conclusion. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Not them, himself to God. Another conclusion. Since that's going to happen... Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. In other words, stop doing what you've been doing. But rather, here's to the other group, rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brother. And then Paul tips his hand. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. I know that. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Let's review quickly. Last week we looked at two main points. First of all, we define who are these weak and the strong. I'm going to talk fast, right? If you missed last week, go back and listen to it on the website. If you were here last week, just a quick review. Who are these weak and strong? We broke it down into four categories. Here we go. The weak Jew. The weak Jew, here's how they would live. I will not eat food that comes from animals that the Bible in Leviticus 11 says those are unclean animals. I'm not eating that. And I'm not going to break the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath. I'm going to keep the tradition of the elders and use it as a day of rest. Exodus chapter 20. Leviticus 11, Exodus 20. But Paul refers to them as weak in the faith. Remember, weak in the faith does not mean morally weak, sinful lives, loose living, with no rules. Weak in the faith here, when you study it out, actually means maybe more rules than the Bible has. So who are the strong in the faith Jews? Strong in the faith Jews say I don't have to live by those restrictions on the Sabbath and I don't have to live by those restrictions on our eating in Leviticus 11 because all of those things pointed to Jesus. He fulfilled them and those, and th- those, those dietary things are not reinstated in the New Testament. In fact, there are passages that we'll look at that say otherwise and so I've been freed from that. I have liberty to eat catfish and shrimp and sausage and ham and bacon and pork chops and those types of things that's the strong in the faith Jew I'm freed from that but do not despise or look down on the one who to God still keeps those things weak Gentiles third category here's the weak Gentile they probably had a pagan background and used to be involved in offering sacrifices to idols And so they would kill animals, offer the meat to sacrifices. Well, they've been saved out of that. And now they feel that leftover meat that has been sold in the market should not be eaten by Christians. That would just be wrong. It's contaminated. It might even be possessed by a demon. You should see this. You guys don't know what happens at those things. I've been there. Don't eat that meat. Here comes a strong in the faith Gentile and says, listen, it's just meat. If you put it under a microscope, there's biologically nothing wrong with it. And spiritually, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just meat. Who cares what they did with it? I'm just eating it as a steak. I'm just, I just like medium, a little baked potato with some butter and salad, Thousand, thousand Island on it. This is great. Sprinkle in some bacon bits and croutons. I just, that's all I care about, man. I'm not putting a whole... And by the way, I'm not worried about some demon possessing, possessing the meat... And then coming inside of me to possess me because I'm already possessed by the Holy Spirit. That is not a threat. Four categories. But would you look at verse 5, the second part of our review is verse 5. One person esteems one, ba- one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced. This was the second part of last week's message. Whichever way you fall, here's what Paul says. Be fully convinced. Listen Know why you do what you do. Know why you believe what you believe. Listen, grace view. Have standards. I don't want to be part of a church that has like no standards. Have standards, but have Bible reasons for those. And if you have standards that go beyond the scripture, that is fine. You can live as strict as you want. But when it goes beyond scripture, do not impose those on other people as doctrine from God. Be careful about doing that. Study Christian. Grace, if you study your Bible with a goal of learning through the years, what is primary doctrine and secondary doctrine and third level tertiary doctrine? What are the essentials? What are the non-essentials? First note for you today is a review from last week. Churches must not strive and try to build unity around non-essentials, tertiary beliefs. If they do, they're going to be very arrogant churches, very judgmental churches. And frankly, those are the weakest of churches. Don't build your doctrine around the lowest level that is least often mentioned in Scripture. Many people do that. They talk about our camp and our stripe and those kinds of things. Be careful with that terminology. What's the main thing? Keep the main doctrines. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior. Salvation is only by grace through faith, things of that nature. Those are the primary. we must agree on those. Some of these tertiary, third level that we'll finish the message with today. We can disagree, but we're not going to make those measurements of godliness or measurements of fellowship. So today's message is the third point, and we'll only have this point, though we'll have some subpoints. Here it comes. Today's message: a word to the week. The word to the week, and you see it in your title already, budge instead of judge. Everybody listen? Word to the week. budge instead of judge. And I want to encourage you right here. Please don't do this. Don't think of someone that might be here or I'm going to get this CD because I got somebody. They need to hear this message. Okay? So don't immediately go, boy, I hope so-and-so is paying attention. So Jeff, why would you say that? I believe in my heart that it is not only possible but probable all of us are weak in the faith in some area. I am. And I hope as we live the Christian life, all of us are strong in the faith in some areas. So don't sit here and listen to this today like, you tell them, Jeff, you tell them to stop judging. Careful, you're doing it right now. So don't do that. But the message today is budge, don't judge why? two ways, the strong in the faith and the the weak in the faith reveal themselves, what, strong in the faith they despise the weak in the faith, they get impatient with them how can you still believe that, that's not in the Bible man, you guys make me so frustrated, I'm tired of you here's one, they live in a way that that trips up and offends the weaker brother, how does the weak in the faith reveal themselves? Often they judge those who are living and even believe differently than they believe. Watch, I did not say they live and believe differently than the Bible. They, they're at, the weak in the faith, they're apt to judge people because you believe differently than I believe and you live differently than I, be, than I live. And so you're wrong. And how can you be right with God? Be careful with that attitude three things about judgment first one will be short and the second one has lots of passages the scripture will fly through and the third one turns really practical at the end can't preach on judgment without saying the first one this is very important what do you guys think is the most mis, uh, what's the most quoted verse in the bible now listen factor in unsaved people because your first thought would be I guess it's John 3:16. among Christians yes but when you go the whole world, the world out there has learned a little short verse in Matthew chapter 7. And they use it often. What is it? Judge not that you be not judged. So they pull that little card out like that trumps everything. Point number one in today's message. Number one. Some judgment is proper discernment. Some judgment is proper discernment. To see this, we need to go no further than last week's passage If you want to mark these, if you have them in your Bible or if you want to, again, go back and study these on your own. Would you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians, where am I at? There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We looked at this last week. We looked at it again on Wednesday night. Here's the point. Some judgment is proper discernment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 9. If you've ever heard me say that what we call 1 Corinthians here is literally not 1 Corinthians, it's actually 2 Corinthians, so here's the reason we know that. While writing this letter, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. This is another one, a first one, that's not inspired. It's not missing, it just wasn't inspired. Paul, to the Corinthians, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. There. They read that and apparently they took it as have nothing to do with unsaved people out there. Just stay away with them. Live in our little communes. hoard ourselves up. And nobody must have asked, well, how do we fulfill the Great Commission if we're just going to get off all in our little holy communities and have nothing? So they totally misread it. Verse 10. Paul says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, so it's not just sexual sins, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Well, then what did you mean, Paul? But now, to clarify, I am writing to you not to associate with any... Here's the Bible, guys. Some judgment is proper discernment. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So if someone goes around and says, oh, I'm a Christian, and they join the church. If someone bears the name of brother and he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or is a drunkard or a swindler, they're cheating people out of their money. Not even to eat with such a one. Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church? Here it comes. I didn't make this up. So, everyone who claims Matthew 7 as an end all passage needs to read this passage. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Discern, evaluate according to the scripture, verse 13. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is not being mean. If you want to write it down, God's people are commanded, not just allowed, we are commanded to make righteous judgments. Using biblical teaching to discern between proper and improper beliefs. Proper and improper actions. We have to discern. Guys, this right here. Do y'all, everybody see that? Go home and read this. This is not gray. This is black and white. So I'm going to say it this way. When the Bible is clear, we can speak the truth boldly in love. Must be in love, but boldly in love. And take a stand right where the scripture does. This is not a mean judgment. This is just... Hey, man, you say you're a Christian, but I'm noticing all the time you're, you're just ripping people off. You're getting drunk all the time. You're a reviler. You're sexually immoral. Dude, I don't think you're saved. How can you do it? Does the Holy Spirit just let you get by with that? He wouldn't let me get by with that. Not that I'm better than. I'm not saying that we couldn't have a, a, a moment or anything like that. But this is your lifestyle. You're acting like an unbeliever, so I'm going to assume you are an unbeliever. That's not being mean. Second thing to notice about judgment. Some judgment is sincere but misguided. Some judgment is sincere but misguided. And I think this is a lot of the weaker brother passage here in Romans 14, if you go back there. So, Jeff, what do you mean? Some people, watch, man, they have a desire to live godly. And they want to please God. And they want to avoid sin. But in their fear, and their desire to stay away from sin. All of a sudden they go through life developing scruples, questions, hesitations on indifferent issues. Things the Bible has not set up. But all of a sudden they have these indifferent, they have these indifferent issues where they're hesitant. Again, scruples, major scruples, about things the Bible does not paint as black and white. You say, Jeff, what's the issue? Just to be clear and to the point, I think the issue is this. They're not informed biblically. It's not being mean. It's me in some areas. It's this. They have a hard time moving forward in Christian liberty. Let me talk real quick about the Old Testament Jew. Watch. Jew married to the law. So the Jew is married to the law. He's born in it. It's all he hears every Saturday. Law, law, law. Rules. Do this. Don't do that. That's all he knows. But then comes Christ. And all of a sudden, he is no longer married to the law because he puts his faith in Jesus. It's going to get too, too theological here, so I'm not going into it. I'm going to say this. This is not a divorce from the law. This is a dying to the law, Romans 7. When Jesus died on the cross, we were in him. We died with him, so the marriage to the law is broken. Marriages die. They're broken at death, so we're no longer married to the law. Now we're free to get married to Christ. But all their life they've been taught these rules. And now they're in Christ with freedom and liberty. But they still struggle with some of the older elements of the law. They still struggle. But all my life I was married to that. And now I'm told I'm married to Christ. And like I just some of those things. Surely that can't be. Does this mean that we can do and we don't have to? And they're really, really tore up inside about this. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse number 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Did you catch Paul's tone? Paul's tone over food and days is very simple. Here's the tone. I'm going to get to the specific in a minute. The tone is this. God has different Christians at different levels at different times. Be aware of that. It's okay. So over here is a guy who thinks one out of the 365 days is really holy. Okay. Or this one over here. There's one day out of the 30 that's really special. Or there's one day out of the seven. That's the main day to really live godly and holy. And then Paul says over here is another person who says all 365 days. All 30. All seven. By the way, neither of these are Avoiding meeting with God's people and encouraging one another to love and to good works and worshiping together and giving to the Lord. It's not about that. It's just one sees it as one day is above the other. And the other one says, every day, whatever I'm doing is to be given for the Lord. And so Paul says, just be convinced. So Jeff, come on. Who's right? Look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Verse 20, we didn't read it, but it's in there. Everything is indeed clean. So it's hinted, I believe, in the tone of the passage, but in verse 14, Paul makes really clear the New Testament stance in verse 14. I'm going to say something, and I don't want it to be taken wrong, because please hear this. I am not pitting Scripture against Scripture. I want you to picture a a, a construction site. We'll do it again in a few minutes. You're there, big construction site. I guess I use that because my dad and my brother are in construction. All right? Picture a big construction site. And the men are working on something that morning from like 7.30 till 11. And they have lunch. Why are they working on that? Because the foreman on the job has talked to the boss. And that's why they've been working on that. But at lunchtime, the boss rides up and says, hey, guys, everything looks good. Listen, this afternoon, we're going to be working over here. We need to form a driveway. I've got three trucks full of wet concrete coming at 3.30, and we need to be ready to pour. So you've got to get some, some, uh, some rebar down. You've got to get some wire down and form those boards on the side. Let's work on it. I thought we were working on this. Uh, you did. And now I'm here and saying that you're working on this. Oh, yes, sir. Why? He's the boss. He's the Lord. So you picture that scene. You say, Jeff, why are you saying that? The Old Testament is the Word of God. It will always be the Word of God. But the New Testament is later revelation. Later revelation gives clarity to previous revelation. I'm going to use a word that may strike you as like, "Ah, I don't like that. I'm, I'm okay with it. Later revelation, just as the boss showing up on the job and overriding what the foreman had for the morning, Later revelation, New Testament, even outranks the previous. And so a point I want to make in the next few minutes is Moses does not outrank Jesus and Paul. Alright? It's been said this way. The New Testament is in the Old contained. You can see it in there. But the Old is in the New explained. Say it again. The New Testament is in the Old contained. But the old is in the new, explained. That's what it was really doing all along. Look at verse 14. In a moment we're going to look at several passages. You have them listed. I'm going to have to go quickly through them. But look at verse 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. This is important. This is not Paul's opinion. That's just Paul's opinion. He says, I know in the Lord. This is Jesus. The Lord has told him this. Also, look at the word persuaded. Think, think, think. What does that mean? Think with me. Paul says, I've been persuaded. What does that mean? He used to believe the other way. Paul would say, I was that way on food, I was that way on the days. And the Lord had to persuade me. I went kicking and screaming. He met me on the Damascus Road. I laid blind for three days thinking, what in the world? This changes everything. Yes, it changes everything. And then the Lord took him out to the desert and for three years privately tutored Paul as he had walked with the other disciples for three years. Now, if you want to follow along, join me in Mark chapter 7. If you want to follow these, we're going to see where... Jeff, uh, actually I need to put another note. We didn't give the note. Here's the note. Okay, here's where we're heading. Here's the point of these passages. Here it is. The New Testament reveals that the dietary restrictions and the Sabbath restrictions of the law of Moses have been lifted. Now, that's a very big statement. Is that a biblical statement? So, pause in Romans 14. We're just working our way through the Bible. And we come across this weaker in the faith, stronger in the faith. All of us have areas where we're weak in the faith. Here's these things with particularly the Jews back then. So... Is this an accurate statement? Are the dietary laws and the Sabbath restrictions, have they been lifted? Christians, boy, I've got to preface this. Please, this is important. Those of you who, in, 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 in all honesty, not pridefully, could say, I have read the entire Bible through once or twice. Some of you have done it twice. Those of you who say... And not bragging, but the Lord's allowed me to read it five times. And some of you, I know you could honestly say, you've read the Bible 20, 25, 30 times from from beginning to the end. Listen to me. Leviticus 11 says there's unclean animals. Don't eat them. Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. So here's my question. As you've been living your life, if you've not been honoring the Sabbath day and you've been eating pork and catfish and shrimp, why have you been doing that? If your answer is, remember, be fully convinced. Know why you do what you do. Know why you believe what you do. If your answer is, well, I've read Leviticus 11 20 times. Then why are you eating these foods that have been called unclean? If your answer is because everybody else is doing it. Not a good answer. You need a Bible reason. And some of you are going, Well, that's me. I've never had a Bible reason. I've read that all those times, and I've just made assumptions. Know why you believe what you believe. And hopefully after the next few moments, you will know why. Mark chapter 7. Look at verse 14. It's talking about Jesus. And he called the people to him again, just random people, and said to them. Well, this is a bit important passage. Hear me. This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. God on earth. Hear me, all of you. And understand. Don't just kind of be over there listening. I want you to understand. Really think. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If Jesus just stopped right there and the Bible said nothing else, I'll promise you for centuries people would be going, hey, you know the Mark passage? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody could almost apply that to the food. Yeah, I've heard a few people do that, but I don't think that's what it means. Watch verse 17. He doesn't stop there. When he had entered the house, so he breaks from the big crowd. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Hey, We've got to follow up on this, guys. Did you just hear what he said? Do you know the ramifications of what he just said? Verse 18. And then he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters not his heart, not his soul, not his spirit? But his stomach and is expelled, uh, not to be ugly, literally what he's saying is, you know, these foods that come in our body, you know where they go, right? They go where all waste products go. Just be blunt, they go down the toilet. So Jesus says. And then Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts this little parenthetical statement at the end of verse 19 Thus he declared all foods clean. And then everybody just living life. There's Peter and James and John and all the other guys. They sat there and they heard it, like, Lord, what does that mean? Now that they're gone. What does that mean? Well, it means this and this and this. And he declared all foods clean. Okay, whatever. And they kept living the same way. Verse 20. And he said, What comes out of a person is what is what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's not the food that's coming in from the outside. Remember, Peter was there. Flip over if you would, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. I cannot give all the background. Boy, I really wish I could, but I can't. We'll get bogged down here, so I'm just going to give the passages. Go home and study them out. These passages are listed in your handout. Acts chapter 10. There are three men headed to meet Peter. Peter. And they represent a Gentile man. They're going to come have Peter bring the gospel to a Gentile. And Peter has never preached the gospel to Gentiles. Can Gentiles even be saved is the big debate that's going to arise. Verse 9. Peter's in a town called Joppa over by the seaside. The next day as they, these three men, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour. That's noon in their time. What's he doing? going to pray. What are you doing at noon? Peter was praying. And just like you at noon, he became hungry, wanted something to eat. But while they, somebody was down in the house preparing it, he fell into a trance. He's going to see a vision. And he saw in, the, in this trance, he saw the heavens opened, And something like a great sheet descending. Picture the stork delivering the babies, right? That's not how babies come, but anyway. That's what you got. It's a sheet upside down being let down by its four corners upon the earth. What's in the sheet? In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him. So here are these animals, some clean, some unclean. There they are on this rooftop, all in this sheet. There came a voice to him. Again, they have no speakers, no recording system. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Kill some of these animals, eat them. But Peter said, By no means, what's the next word? Say it louder. By no means. Lord He knows who this is By the way that phrase does not match You don't say by no means Lord You don't say Lord And he says do something No Well then I'm not Lord But he says by no means Lord Why not For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean Implying I'm not starting now And the voice came to him again a second time And says what God has made clean Do not call common This happened three times And the thing was taken up at once to heaven Did you catch that? Peter has a direct command to, ki- to kill and eat unclean animals, unclean, formerly unclean food. This is based off of Mark 7. These animals, I know, symbolically represent Gentiles being brought in, unclean Gentiles being brought into the church. But we have to acknowledge, literally, he's talking about food. Flip over to chapter 15 quickly. Acts 15. What's the scene here? Gentiles have been saved. Some Jews have gone to the cities where these Gentiles are getting saved and telling them they have to now become Jewish and they have to come under all the laws and they have to get circumcised and keep the Sabbath days and the dietary restrictions. But the church meets and they come to a conclusion. Acts chapter fifteen, would you look at verse twenty two? So here's the conclusion. Boy, I gotta let me get thirty seconds. Ready? Paul and Barnabas were up north at Antioch. They are the ones who led the Gentiles to Christ. And then some false teachers from Jerusalem came up and kind of messed up the theology of these people when Paul and Barnabas weren't there. And they're telling him, they go over to Galatia. And they're telling those people, you've got to be Jewish. You've got to keep the Old Testament laws. Paul and Barnabas come and hear about it and it makes them really angry. No, they are a full Christian. They've only put their faith in Christ. That's all they have to do. They do not have to be circumcised to seal the deal. They don't have to start keeping the Old Testament laws for the Jews to seal the deal of salvation. So verse 22, the church convenes and decides, is this true or not? Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. We've got to set this straight. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So here's the official letter. The rest was just historical. Here comes the letter. Quote. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we heard that some persons have gone out, have gone out from us, implying they acted like they were from us, acting like they were given orders from us, but we didn't. So verse 24 again. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds... Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. In other words, Barnabas and Paul have been right. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Here comes the conclusion. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So here's the, here's the suspense. Do we have to get circumcised? Do we have to keep the Sabbath days? Do we have to do that and that and that? Here's, here's our list, verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Not Jeff, that kind of goes against what we've been looking at in Romans. Hang on. And from blood. Abstain from blood, th- things stra- sacrificed to idols, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. But watch this phrase. If you keep yourselves from these, then you'll really be saved. Not what it says. If you will keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. I wish I had put verse 21. If you have your Bible open, I'm going to read it. I made a mistake by not putting this on the screen. James, the Lord's half-brother, who's the pastor of the Jerusalem church, when he kind of sums up the whole meeting, and then they create this letter... The reason he says these four things is not because these four things are sinful of themselves. Obviously, the sexual immorality is. But verse 21 For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James is saying, Would you ask those Gentiles, don't eat things that have been strangled? It's going to drive the Jews crazy. Don't have them drink blood, don't have them eat meat that's been offered to idols. That's just going to. I know that. Okay, and Paul's going to write in Romans, and Paul's going to write in Corinthians later, clarifying that. But please, for now, at least in these early stages of the transition from the Old Testament to the New, when Jews are really trying to get a grip, can Gentiles even come into the church and really be saved without becoming Jewish? Just if you'll not do these things, you'll do well. Galatians chapter four. If you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen. Unless you want to follow along and see it for yourself. Galatians chapter 4, very brief comment. Verse 8. These are the people who were told they have to get circumcised. And while they were waiting to hear the verdict from Jerusalem council, some of them started living under the laws of the Old Testament. And they kind of reverted and started trying to live legalistically because they were made unsettled. People from Jerusalem are telling us we've got to do this, so I guess we better start doing it. Verse 8. Paul fusses at the end. For not just trusting Christ. Verse 8. Formerly, you Galatians, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You served idols. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? How can you turn back to that again? Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Did you guys really? Are you listening to them? If you needed anything more than Christ, I would have told you. And their answer was like, yeah, but they really made us scared. They made me think I was not going to go to heaven just by trusting Christ. Paul's like, man, I'm afraid I labored over you in vain. Are you really having put your faith in Christ by grace through faith? Are you now going to put yourself under law to like finish getting to heaven? Don't do that. It's not that they did that. It's the reason trying to ensure salvation that frustrated Paul flip over just a couple of books quickly Colossians chapter 2 very very clear Colossians 2 very strong look at Colossians 2 verse 16 therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food hey you can't eat that and drink hey that's sin to drink that what's Paul say let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival you didn't keep the festival you haven't been in Jerusalem for the festival in five years. You're not right with God. Whoa, don't let anybody judge you in that. Or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, punishing yourself, and worship of angels, going on in detail about their visions, puffed up without reason by His sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Hang hang tight here. Comes back around. Focus. Verse 20. And with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Paul what are you saying? You guys are letting everybody tell you what to do. You're letting people make rules for you to live by and you're living up to their rules that are not God's rules. Verse 21 gives them. Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch. In other words, don't taste that, don't eat that, don't touch that. That's sin, that's sin. And Paul's like, stop listening to them. You don't have to scream and holler at them. Just don't let them dictate your life. Verse 22, all this touch not, handle not, taste not. Refer to things that are all perishing as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. Paul says of these things, yeah, indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And asceticism and severity to the body. But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Song we sang a while ago. I'm laying down on my religion. Paul says, people love religious things. And they love religious rules. Don't let them rule over you. Matthew 12, verse 8. Jesus, look at this. Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You really have to go back and study. You ought to go study Matthew 12. Let me say it this way. The Sabbath. Not only is Jesus, the listen, the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm going to say Jesus is the Sabbath. Jeff, what does that mean? Watch. In the Old Testament, we work, we work, and 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 we work. They didn't have a weekend, and then you rest. And then you work, 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 work. rest. I hope I had six. Rest. See it? Work, rest, work, rest. How does that apply to Jesus? We're, we're born in this world thinking, if I could just be good enough, I'm going to try to earn my way to heaven, and we live Working and working and working. But we never get saved. And along comes Jesus. And we realize He did all the work. And we stop working and start trusting in Him. He becomes the Sabbath. The Sabbath all along was man needs rest. Because we can never do enough work. we got to at some point just trust God to do it all. I'm trusting Jesus. And I'm resting in Him. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. All along it pointed to Him. First Timothy chapter I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are are seared. What do they do? Who forbid marriage. That's wrong to get married. What? And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so if you say, well, I, I, I got a Bible reason now why I... Okay, good, now you got a Bible reason. Because Leviticus is in the scripture. To be clear, have convictions. But if you're going to impose those convictions as beliefs that others should follow to be right with God, then you need to have Bible reason. Otherwise, give grace. And that takes us back to Romans 14, the third type of judgment. Some judgment is censorious and arrogant. Say it again. Some judgment is proper discernment. Some judgment is sincere, but it's misguided. And some judgment is censorious and arrogant. It's in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. let not the one who abstains pass judgment... Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment? Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. You say, Jeff, what, is the, what in the world is this censorious? How many of you have never heard the word censorious? Be honest. You're like, okay, good. That, that was, what does this mean? Well, let's define it. Censorious is an adjective describing people who are so critical. They find something wrong in everything. It is severe disapproval. It is severe passing judgment on doubtful things. You ever met somebody like that? Have you ever been that way? So there's doubtful things. It's not really clear in the Bible, but they hammer away at people. Here's what they really do. They look down at others, whether consciously or subconsciously. They may say, you're not right with God like we are, or they're just thinking it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm righteous. You're not. Why? Because you're not living up to my rules. Sincer- censorious judgment. That brings into play Matthew 7. Would you look at Matthew 7? Judge not. That you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And you see the other verses. Get the log out of your own eye before trying to get the speck. Hey man, you've got a real issue here. Well, thanks for pointing that out. But, man, you're about to kill me with that log that's in your eye. I mean, whoa. Kind of watch out, buddy. Uh, don't be that kind of Christian going around and looking down at everybody with your set of rules that are not Bible-based. Look at Romans 8. I've got to let you see. Look at Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Rom- Romans 14. Romans 14. I'm going to wait. I want to I take, I don't, I don't have time, but I want to, first person who kind of starting in verse 6 down to verse 9, there's a word that you use seven times. So you need your Bible. So you're in Romans 14. Those of you who have your Bible, look at verse 6. It's even back in verse 4. But look at verse 6 down to verse 9. There's a word used seven times. What do you think it is? Even if you don't get all the way there, four letters. Lord, Lord. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Hey, watch. I said we were going to use a construction analogy again. Watch this. Picture you're building a house. Okay? You're building a big house. And it's nearing the finish line. And you've got five, six, seven contractors all around your house. So you got the electricians there. The plumbers are finishing setting up fixtures. The painter's touching up where the carpet guys ding some places up. Okay, you got the irrigation guy working outside the roofers up on the roof, you got trucks all over, trucks and vans, and you're walking around, everything's looking good, you're kind of excited, you and your spouse are going around saying, what are you are going to do here? And then you got the picture? When all of a sudden you hear what sounds like a commotion out in the front yard, and you're like, what in the world's going on? And you go to the front, and there's one of the contractors just blowing out another contractor. In fact, it's the electrician just sending the irrigation guy down the street. He's just fussing at him. And you're like, hey, excuse me, hey, what, what's, what's going on? And he's like, I'm straightening this guy out. Do you guys know each other? No, I never met him in my life. What's the problem? Look in his truck. He's got a McDonald's bag from yesterday. I saw him eating this Burger King a while ago. He's just throwing it in the floorboard of his truck. Look, he's got cans and drink bottles. Dude, clean your truck up. It's a disgrace. Looks like he hadn't run it through the car wash in a month. Don't come back on this job site with a dirty... And right about then, what are you thinking? Like, whoa, d- dude... You're out of your lane That's not your lane You you're, you're telling, he, you don't know him Never met him in my life <laughs> kind of like, He's scary He's just getting all up Listen, that irrigation guy may be the best irrigation guy in Anderson County But he just keeps a dirty van or a dirty truck And he's his, he's his employer's best worker This guy has no right to impose his standard of cleanliness on that guy Arbitrarily it's not his to do. The point of Romans 14 for us today is Jesus is Lord. We're not. And so we cannot impose our opinions on other people as if they're doctrines from God. We can't. He's the Lord. They'll answer to him. And so I want to come down the home stretch of today's message by giving some examples that I've lived through of censorious judgment. And some of it, perhaps. Misguided, sincere judgment I'll make a few comments along the way as I do this Only because I've seen these things literally be divisive Some of these things I'm going to give you I don't know how many I'll make it through, watch Some have a Bible base But they go beyond the Bible Or they misapply the scripture Some of them are totally random and arbitrary Just Somebody just made them up These are the rules of, of Christianity Again, some are Bible-based, some are not. This is important before I start this list. I invite you as you listen to this, only evaluate the list biblically. Only biblically. Can we agree? Well, I hope we can do this. Can we agree that saying, I was not raised that way, can we agree that's not a Bible reason? That's wrong. Why? I wasn't raised that way. Can we agree? You can have that as a standard, but that's not a Bible reason for us to put that on other. Can we agree there? So as we're mentioning some of these things, I'm not saying them to create emotion. I'm, trying, I'm saying them to illustrate what I've seen happen. And somebody may be sitting here right now and, going, huh, and laugh at that one and laugh at that one. And that's funny. You're kidding. Really? Until something that you believe in. If you hear something you kind of believe in, all I would ask you is, why do you believe it? And quickly write the references that defend why you believe that. And I will do it reverently. William Barclay says, It is no small sin to laugh at another man's beliefs. So I'm not doing that. I've been bought into some of these. I have been on the line of some of these. Some have had this view. Here we go. You can't be right with God. Man can't be right with God and wear long hair. You ever heard that? And some of you are like, well, Jeff, actually that one is in the Bible. It's in Corinthians. Does not nature teach you that a man shall not have long hair? You're right. What's the problem? It never says what long is. And so here's the issue. Please hear me i'm not I'm not saying it's wrong for a school or a place of employment to have a standard that is fine, but to place spirituality on two fingers over the eyebrow and if it if it touches the ear and the collar that's you making up your own rules and I've seen that it's one thing you can have a standard hey at my place of business man i kind of I, I, I want your hair up off the off the ear, and I want it off the eyebrow. A couple fingers, and, and don't let your hair t- touch your collar. That's fine. They could choose to work there or not. But don't come on and say ah, it's godly. Oh, you're ungodly. Why? Your bangs are touching your eyebrow. Says who? Two fingers. Well, why not one? Or why not four? Yeah, the whole everybody got to, that's your rule. Who established ears and collar and eyebrows as the standard? Here's one. You can't be right with God. Man can't be right with God and wear a beard. Last week, uh, on Wednesday night, I said my dad has five brothers. And I think my granddad, my papa, had that as a belief, I believe. Because none of them have ever worn beards. I have an uncle who I love dearly. He had a heavy impact, as much as anybody, on my early ministry. He believed a man, quote, ought to be clean shaven. Hope he doesn't hear this. Because through the years, there were a couple of times where he heard I was coming back to my hometown. And he had asked, hey, ask my mom, if Jeff will preach. Sure, I'll preach. And I had a dilemma because I'm wearing a beard, which Deanna technically prefers. Now, it's mostly gray if I were to grow one. So here I'm heading, I'm going to be preaching. I've done it. I've gone there on a couple occasions wearing a beard. And I'm going to tell you, I could feel the disapproval. Almost like you seriously you're gonna preach in my pulpit wearing that? Like, he never said it. I like, oh, got a beard. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Here's my questions. If having a beard is sinful, then why did God make men with facial hair? Now, if I stop there, then somebody could do this. If having adultery is sinful, then why did God make me with these sinful desires? It must be okay. No, that's part of the curse. But if we're going to say having a beard is sinful, then we must be saying it's part of the curse. Question. Did Jesus not have a beard? If if so, we know he didn't have a sin nature because that he didn't have. He's the son of God. If he had a beard, then it's not part of the curse. Did the Old Testament not tell the Jews to let the sides of their beard grow long? Maybe we need to have more beards to be godly. And next time, and by the way, I've felt it. I've felt it from people. Usually it comes along, it's playful. You lost your razor, I see. And I will admit, a few times I have sarcastically said, just trying to be like Jesus. Here's one. You've, you've, some of you be like, what? And most of you be like, mm-hmm, I've heard that. And listen, if this is you, please gauge the emotion by Scripture. Here's one. You can't be right with God and women wear pants. Where's that from? That comes from a verse in the Old Testament that tells women not to wear that which pertains to a man. Here's the problem. Nowhere in that passage does it say pants. People didn't wear pants then. Now they wear pants, and so people take this passage and arbitrarily on their own just apply that as something spiritual in today's culture. The point is, women shouldn't be wearing men's clothing. I'm going to tell you, if, if you think that's the hard line, the, pants is the right application. Pants are manly. All pants are manly. If you believe that, come on. I, I, I don't have the money, but I'll go to Belk and I'll buy you a pair of women's pants and I'll dare you to wear them next week. Why? There are men's pants and there are women's pants. That's the point. Did you notice what these three things I've given have to do with? Hair, beard, pants, externals, not much about the internals. Here's one I've literally heard, particularly for preachers. Preachers shouldn't wear colored dress shirts. White shirts are godly. What? uh, Where is that at? Just just take it from me son. White shirts are godly. Here's one. Some insist I got to be I want to watch my tone cuz I don't want to make light or poke fun at people's beliefs. Some insist that a church must have 3 services each week to be a godly church. Once again the problem is number of services are never listed in the New Testament. Here's one, not to make anyone upset, the sanctity of the worship center. The sanctity of the worship center. In other words, where people get together and build a building in God's name, and that's where God's people, then we behave in that totally different in there than we do in other places. Now listen, we need to be good stewards of God's money and God's purchases. We need to be good stewards of that. But some have gone beyond and they have this idea that if you're to drink a drink or have a cup of coffee, in the okay, you can have it on, in the office side and you can have it on the education wing, but if you bring the coffee into where the preaching and the singing is going on, you've now crossed the line. That is ungodly. The problem is, read the New Testament. The early church met in houses. They had meals together. And the preaching and the singing would just break out after the meal. I think it's much like what we do on Wednesday nights for nine months out of the year. I cannot just arbitrarily say, that's wrong, that's sinful. By the way, if your drink is just an excuse to kind of, well, I know Jeff preaches an hour, an hour and five minutes, and so I've got that much to kind of keep distracting myself, working my way. Okay. Then you don't need to bring a drink. But if you have one, that, great. Don't let it distract you. If you can go an hour without it, great. But again, it's not a sinful thing. Here's one, I'm going to hit it quickly. Denim. Denim. You're like, denim? Yeah, it's sinful, right? You knew that. Based on what? Some have seen denim as less godly at church. Here's the the argument. It's too casual. It's not a serious attitude toward the things of God. It's too laid back. I will tell you, our society does see jeans, blue jeans, black jeans, gray jeans as casual. But let me say this. I've been at some ball games and I've seen some pretty fervent, fired up people wearing blue jeans. Zealous, man. They're intense. And I've been in some churches with some ladies in silk dresses and dudes in polyester suits just sleeping their way through the service. It's not about denim. It's not about polyester and silk. Here's another one quickly Entertainment Habits. This is the eighth one. Listen, the Bible gives black sin and white. This is right. But it also gives principles. So, Jeff, where are you heading? This is entertainment. Be careful about imposing your standards on other people. You may have had an experience of playing pool where people are blowing their family's money and people are getting drunk and getting in fights. But if someone else plays pool in a wholesome way, that is not a simple thing. You can't put that rule. If someone else is playing cards, they like to play rook, and you say cards equals gambling and you're, you're wasting the family's grocery money. Not every time. And if you say, I don't have a TV because it's ungodly. And someone else says, I like watching Andy Griffith. And you're like, no, that Andy Griffith, the Thelma Lou and Barney. And they're dancing around and it's just a bunch of sin. Okay, that's fine. You can have that line. But be careful. Don't make rules on other people that are not in the scripture. The last two. These next two are the most divisive. And they produce the most emotion. More than any, all the other eight put together. Listen. Lots of emotion. But I find that when you really peel away the belief system, there's very little scripture that's rightly applied. You say, what is it? Music. Music is a major area where many try to impose their personal standards, their personal taste, as though they're Bible standards. I have my preferences. They've changed. What does that tell me? Wait a minute. I must have been wrong then, or maybe I need to be careful This is where I'm at now. I might change again before I die. This is what is censorious judgment. When some just arbitrarily label certain kinds of music as godly and certain kinds as ungodly. Watch. Certain instruments, godly. Other instruments, ungodly, ungodly. Careful. Have you ever read the Bible? Watch this. Psalm 150 let me read it. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. That's what and where. Why? Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Here comes how. Watch this. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Yes, approved. Praise Him with lute and harp. Okay, strings. Approved. Praise Him with tambourine, percussion. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Now you're sinning. Well, what are we going to do with this? This is the Bible. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Uh, We've got woodwinds in here. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Psh, 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 psh. That's ungodly. We need to get that out of the Bible. Who showed them that verse anyway? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And do it with music. Careful about setting man-made standards. That's godly. Here's some. Sacred. Classical. I'm talking about just Christian music. Classical Christian. Southern gospel. Negro spiritual. Praise and worship. Contemporary. Bluegrass. I want to tell you, some of those don't speak to me. But some of those speak to other people. And I've got to allow that. 300 years ago, the church sang with Gregorian chants until this guy named Isaac Watt comes along and he starts to write these things called hymns. And today, everybody accepts hymns. 300 years ago, he had a hard time. People were telling him that they're too worldly. They're not the chance. And here he comes along with these hymns. Worldly hymns. Now they're accepted. The piano. Everybody accepts the piano. 150 years ago, those are saloons. Those are bars. You don't bring that into the church. Do you see what I'm saying? Careful at drawing lines where God does not. And that brings me to the last one. The Bible is the word of God. And y'all know where I'm going. There have been heretical attempts by some cults to create their own translations of Scripture. Why? Because they've got used to us Whipping them in debates where they're trying to downplay the deity of Christ. So here's what they've done. They've changed their Bible and they bring their Bible up and you go to your usual passages, Hebrews 1 and John 1 and these other passages like it and all of a sudden they've changed the wording. Colossians 1, remember the ones. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. And they've changed the wording to fit their argument. That's sin, that's wrong. They've twisted and perverted the translations of Scripture. But here's the issue. Some have got out of their lane and crossed over the line because they have just arbitrarily set themselves up to say that one translation is the final end-all translation in a given language. Implying this, what happened 400 years ago can never be replicated, can never be done that well again, and it was never done that well before. That is the end-all, be-all Translation. Now, hear me right here. This is important. Somebody will get this on online, and they'll pull a few little words out, and they'll twist my comments, and they're going to skip this part, but you hear it well. The King James Bible is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. I've preached from the King James more than any other translation by far. God has blessed my teaching and preaching of the King James Bible, but here's my issue. I remember sitting as an 18-year-old boy, naively sitting in a Bible college class, and that teacher, probably about 55, 60 years old, led me to the point, shame on me, shame on him, led me to a point where I literally wrote something like this question. In the, in the margin of my Bible, I wrote something like this. Can a person be saved using a translation besides the King James? 18-year-old kid. I, it was never an issue back home in Asheville, but I get down to the Bible call and all of a sudden I'm wondering, oh my, can they get saved by another translation? Y'all know how we get saved, right? We get saved by believing in Jesus. Why do we believe in Jesus? Because we hear the promises of God, and it doesn't have to be in 1600s English. This is so smart, Alec, and I wouldn't do it, but part of me wishes I could go back to that class. And say, eh, excuse me. Yes, sir, brother. What is your name? You never say anything. What, what is your What's it? Bart Bart Bartley. Yes, brother Bartley. I'm sorry. Just real quick question. Why dost thou in thy speech not practice what thou demandest of others to practice in their reading? After which he would say, What? And then when the class woke up, like, oh, what was it, guy? guy? He talks. Hey, <laughs> he talks. Hold on. What do he say? My question, very simply, is Why dost thou in thy speech not practice what thou demandest of others to practice in their reading? Point. You don't talk like that. Why do you demand that we read like that? It is the word of God. Please hear me. I say it again. More questions. Why has the 1611 King James been revised? We don't read the 1611. My biggest one. Why was it not prophesied in the scriptures that it would be the end all litmus test to determine who are godly and who are not godly? Who are approved? Who to fellowship with? You say, well, why would that matter? That's how some set it up. They say the King James, if you don't use it, like I'm preaching from the ESV, as if it is less than that. Why wasn't it prophesied in the scriptures? I have more questions. Did the translators in 1611 have access to more material, better material? Did they have more scholastic ability and linguistic ability? Were they more godly? This one's important. This next one. You ever heard of raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Septuagint? Septuagint. Raise your your hand. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. But then they need the, the the language of the day is Greek in the New Testament. So the New Testament is written in Greek. Problem. These people can't read the Old Testament written in Hebrew. So they translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. Here's the thing. Most experts say the Septuagint was not a great translation. And yet nowhere in the New Testament do I read anywhere where Jesus says, Now today I'm preaching against that heretical Septuagint. Why are y'all reading that? He doesn't do it. Even the Sanhedrin does not scold people for reading what is not the best translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. You want to hear the new one? You've heard it. It's usually the same group, by the way. Oh, I know I'm going long. I'm almost done. Same group. Here's what they do. Would you like paper or plastic? What does that mean? Some now make a spiritual issue out of whether you use a paper Bible which I prefer, I like my leather and my paper. They make it a spiritual issue if you use paper and leather as opposed to an electronic version on a phone or a tablet or a computer. It goes something like this. You preachers up there, you say, you guys see me. I'm old school. I've got a big old thick Bible. I've got my typed out notes with all these highlights. I don't know. Everything's highlighted. I get it. I've been told, like, dude, when you highlight everything, nothing's really highlighted. I understand. I get that. But here's the, here's the problem. When you, it's like preachers that use a tablet and scroll up, they're not as godly. They're not right with God. And you preachers that put your, your, your Bible notes into your notes, you put your scriptures into your notes, instead of taking a copy of the Bible up to the pulpit with you, you're just not as godly. Okay, hang on. Here's what they're forgetting. The scripture did not arrive this way. It arrived one book at a time, written in stone, written in clay, written on the back of animal skins. Nobody here has a Bible in stone clay or animal skins, then papyrus, and then we grouped them together. Why are we now attaching spirituality to paper and ink when it didn't start that way? And electronic is bad. And somebody's sitting here this morning saying, please tell me he's made all those things up. And some of you are going, oh, no, no, every one of those. Check, check, been there, been there, yeah. And in some people's world, these are deal breakers. I'm not going to that church, why? The women are wearing pants, Their guys are wearing beards. Preaching out of the ESV, they got music I don't approve of. They got coffee in the back, and, this, and the music—they got some instruments there that just aren't godly. Here's my point: you can have those standards for yourself, but when you try to impose on on somebody else, you're getting out of your lane. You're acting like the Lord instead of God being the Lord. Do you notice what it's mostly about? Here's the fights: appearance, music, what kind of Bible. Here's my question. Go read the Bible and tell me, right there where you're sitting, how many passages can you think of off the cuff that have specifically to do with appearance and exactly the types of music. None of the ones I listed are in there. I found it amazing the ones that think, oh yeah, bluegrass gospel is godly, but classical or sacred is just too high church. And it goes the other way. Classical Christian, that's where it's at, and you contemporary people you're not real Christians are these the real dominant themes of scripture I would say they're not these are not the fights God wants us to fight do not judge others I close with this Bible discernment pleases God now Lord your word says this very clearly so I should yes Bible discernment clear that pleases God Sincere, personal beliefs and standards is allowed by God. But arrogant, censorious judgment that divides God's people displeases God. Budge instead of judge. Let's close and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for these folks' attention. Lord, I pray that this unusual, not...